This is the We Can Do Better podcast with Adam O'Leary, talking about Michigan's 2nd Senate District, featuring stories from Detroit, Gross Point, Amtramic, Harper Woods, and Highland Park, told by the people doing the work, and myself, Senator Adam O'Leary. Hey, this is uh, Senator Adam Ollier, and this is the We Can Do Better podcast. I am excited to host uh, one of my really good friends and brothers, uh, Rodney Jacobs. He is somebody I went to basic training with and then officer candidate school. So we spent a lot of time together, uh, dirty and muddy and tired and sleepy and annoyed and frustrated and like, what are hungry. we doing? <laughs> yeah, no, I spent a lot of time hungry, like, uh, <laughs> We, right. Uh, uh, so, Rodney, do you want to introduce yourself? I mean, you're doing some really incredible work down in, in Miami. And, you know, there was a time this summer where I think everybody was probably banging your door down like, hey, what do we need to be doing? And now we've gotten to a place where people are like, so police reform? Is that a thing? <laughs> solve that problem, right? Solve problem, solve. Right. We got angry about it and moved on. That's that's our level of, of solving the issue. But no, I appreciate you having me on today. Um, really looking forward to the conversation, just having like a natural back and forth talking about some of these things. Um, in you know, down here in Miami, I serve as our assistant director of our civilian review board uh, that looks at police officer complaints um, forged against the police department. So more like an external internal affairs. I think people have become more aware of the work of civilian oversight because of the space that we're in. Uh, so we've been doing it here in Miami since 2000. Um, I also help coordinate one of our consent decrees uh, against the city of Miami Police Department in conjunction with the DOJ. Uh, so with that, you know, it comes with a lot of different hats to wear and areas um, of flexibility. Uh, we're actually rolling out our first uh, community police mediation program. Uh, so that's something that we're really excited about here too. But, you know, right now we're just kind of in this space where we're like, what's next? What are we doing here? So, so to, I mean, to that end, you know, I think everyone looked at this summer and there was a a collective outcry with George Floyd but people then went to this space where they were like um what's going on what happened to Breonna Taylor what happened you know in some of these other situations and there was this dichotomy where there was video of a man being murdered versus the back and forth accounts in some of these other situations and people not being able to reconcile the difference between say how Breonna Taylor was treated in this situation versus a George Floyd or a Flandy, you know, you know, just every other name of, you know, all these folks and how we had been, you know, in this collective sense of not another person, not another name and all of these different solutions that were posed but the civilian oversight model has kind of been there in a number of spaces, but it's not something that people understand how to use or operate. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like, what you do, how it works? Yeah, so civilian oversight obviously is something that's in some ways been tried and true uh, throughout the course of our nation's history when dealing with police officers. Um, it's essentially, at least in Miami, it works um, in a hybrid form, an investiga investigation form, as well as an audit form, and obviously we're bringing in the mediation form as well coming up. Uh, but essentially we get complaints from community members. They come to our office, they file a complaint, um, and we use our independent investigators to investigate what occurred in that situation. Uh, from there, we proffer uh, those findings of fact to a civilian panel uh, that is selected by the uh, county commission or the city commission, as well as some from the mayor. 
Um, and, and from there, that panel gives a finding of fact and recommendation to the police chief. And the police chief can then utilize that recommendation to either conduct discipline, exonerate, or say nothing at all, right? So this whole idea or notion is really um, steeped in the idea of procedural justice uh, so that community members have trust in a system um, in some ways and allow them to voice their concerns in a productive way as well. Um, I was often the one to say that, hey, you know, you have another option. You know, if if you feel as though that police have agreed you in some way, you just don't have to go home and do nothing. You just don't have to uh, protest in the streets. Um, obviously, you have a courtroom remedy if it's criminal or it's civil in nature. But even outside of those things, our office adds uh, to that layer of of uh, redemption in some ways. Uh, so if you, if you come to our office and you file a complaint, uh, we do our best to, to make sure the situation has some level of finality. Uh, whereas you're just not sitting at home uh, soaking and trying to figure out what happened, why me, how come no one's listening? Uh, so we provide that layer of context. Uh, but, but to your other uh, question, Senator, it's, it's interesting, man. You know, one of the things that I was really kind of open and upfront about when we were having this discussion nationally about what we should do. You know, you had a lot of young leaders coming to the forefront with ideas and principles. And I know we had a couple of Zoom conversations about it as well. And the reason why a lot of these issues are still persisting today that people were talking about, heck, in the 60s, 50s, and 40s is because they are that complex. It's because really when you talk about bringing down an institutional difference or an institutional force like a police department, there's no real easy answers. To boot, you have unions with a lot of money that can fight you in the court systems as well. So the reason why there isn't a lot of like what's next and that energy has kind of dissipated to a bit is because people have realized this might actually take hard work. Uh, you know, this isn't just going to be solved by a couple posts on social media or a couple cries to elected leaders. People are going to have to roll up their sleeves, especially when it's hard, and bring about practical solutions um, in ways that make sure that we have um, real meaningful change. And so that's what I was really talking about too. You know, there was often times where, you know, we heard the mantras of, uh, you know, defund the police and the definitions of what that may mean, whether it's totally eradicate policing or just reappropriate funding. Um, and, and that comes with a whole litany of things. You know, the interesting part about some of this stuff is we aren't the first ones to think about it. There's a lot of black, brown and other people that have written PhD dissertations on how to reform policing. And if you kind of peel back some of those layers on those books, uh, you see that there isn't really a lot of original ideas here. This is what we can do. This is what we can do. This may work. This may not. Uh, so at this point, I really think it's about kind of exercising some of those experimental hypotheses and making sure that we kind of put our money where our mouth is to, to see it through to the end. Here in Miami-Dade County, we've instituted civilian oversight now for the first time over the largest police force um, in the South. Um, obviously, you have my department here at the city of Miami. Um, and elected leaders are really thinking hard about how we can ensure that our police department looks more like safety and less like policing, as well as making sure that community members have a seat at the table uh, when determining how they are policed. And I think if you kind of start with those two things, you can get rolling in creating a base on where to go next. And so as you talk about kind of this idea of there is no new idea and we know what works, uh, the current administration has, uh, or the DOJ uh, has been notoriously limited um, in this, you know, over the last four years compared to pretty much every other DOJ in the number of consent agreements uh, or consent degrees that they open up with uh, local departments. And we've seen significant change as a result. So the city of Detroit was under a consent degree for 
a number of years and you know we saw significant changes in the way police work you saw community police rolling out i mean you've heard a number of people talk about uh the way chief craig you know our, our police chief has policed and how you know we're not for the consent degree that he would not have come because maybe the department would not have been in a space to expect you know accept some of those type of forms and so you know, can can you just talk a little bit about what that federal oversight has done for uh, your ability to work and navigate change and, and, you know, how it works as a model compared, you know, as we look into or, you know, we look forward into a change in administration and some potential changes that you may see at the federal level uh, when there's so many departments that are have been teetering in and out of this kind of space where, you, you know, you saw in Camden, they had a federal decree that was like basically like, man, maybe you guys should shut down your police department. <laughs> you know, you saw it'll be Camden like that. You know, they're gonna be coming for y'all Detroit people anyway. So I mean, they, they are literally they're legitimately the only community in the country that literally abolished their police, right? Like they they did actually shut down their department and were like, you know what? We're gonna start from scratch. Like they didn't yeah. you know, no police, but they were like, that police department was so broken, it is closed. They closed up shop and they started again from scratch. And so as we talk about, you know, in the zit geist of defund or abolish, that is the only example to refer to of some of a place where they were like, yeah, okay, we're, we're closing the doors. Everybody out, starting new. <clears throat> We've we seen similar things, or at least that come relatively close, right? And Eugene, Oregon had a similar situation. Obviously, Ferguson got pretty close. I mean, their consent decree, although the Ferguson Police Department was like maybe 20 officers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they got pretty close with their consent decree and some of the work they did. Um, we saw even closer to that, obviously, in the aftermath of George Floyd and uh, what that city commission did with their police department and disbanding it to an extent. Although I think the ink isn't dry on what will really happen there just yet. <clears throat> what I will say is this, and this is one thing I've always said about totally abolishing a police department and not knowing what you're going to get thereafter. Uh, typically how this happens is that police don't just don't go away. Right. You know, usually you contract with a county uh, police department and they come and patrol the streets and usually have less accountability over those county officers. If you're, you know, the local elected mayor or the local uh, elected you know, official. Right. You contract with the county, county officers come in and they patrol your streets with real uh, with more or less less accountability. Um, so that could be problematic for a number of reasons. But also in the in, you know, the non-existence of contracting with the county, you contract with, you know, private security forces or at some level of Pinkertons. And it just becomes like this wild, wild west situation. So one thing that I've realized, at least not only in this realm, but others as well, is usually when you privatize something and you don't know what you're going to get but afterwards, it's usually bad for black people. So what you, what you really want to understand is what you're asking for and how to exercise um, your points of access much better so that you can get the ultimate impact of what you really want. Because you may say, and it may sound really good to say, let's abolish the police, but not knowing what you're going to get thereafter is probably you know just shifting the burden to something even more problematic. Um, so I was always the one to say, hey, hey, listen, I'm here for reappropriation of funds when we talk about policing because there's so many things that police departments do uh, that have been ascribed to them solely because they are the biggest budget, you know, um, filler in any level of government, whether it be local or federal, when we talk about the military. So usually if you get the most money, usually people look at you uh, to solve those issues as well. And one thing we can at least determine definitively from this is that police should not be doing uh, certain social services and things of that nature. What does that look like? How do you dial them back from that? Obviously, that's going to take a little bit more uh, understanding and practical analysis. 
but there are methods out there that do work, right? So you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel either. Uh, so I, I think it's important um, to your point so, to really think critically about these things in ways that work for th these individual communities, right? Not necessarily like a blanket one size fits all solution for these things, right? Because what works in Miami may not be what works in Detroit. And so that's why consent decrees have to go to overarching question. And that's why consent decrees are so vital, right? Because what you have in a consent decree, more so than just the language is written on, is that you have a federal judge overseeing it, pretty much giving edicts from the off high saying, you must do this, you must change your culture, right? And if one thing we have learned in society, that the best way to change behavior is through the judiciary, right? If you really want systemic police changes, uh, you know, the two best things to do is one, bring in an outside police chief, and two, uh, have a federal consent decree with judges uh, forcing you to do things that are in the best interest of the community. Um, I know Chief Craig in Detroit, he's done great things. Uh, he's also never met a camera he does not like. Uh, so I think, I think, <laughs> so I, I think, I think it's, I think it's pretty great some of the things you guys are doing there. And um, I, I think you could really be used as a test case uh, to sow seeds in other municipalities. So, you know, as you talk about, kind of about the, the kind of verbiage and these ideas and, you know, the federal judiciary and that judge being able to say and decree, how does that compare to the authority or powers that, you know, civilian oversight have? And I know in Miami, you all have, you know, increased the level of civilian oversight and some of the authority that you have, you know, over the last six months to, you know, year. And where is, where are you now? Where should people be going? Who is a good model? How should people be framing and thinking about what they're asking for and looking for as they say, hey, we want oversight to look like this. We want, you know, models to be like this. This is what we want as deliverables because I think people know what they don't like, but have not yet seen, I mean, you're a black man in America. It's hard to say, yeah, man, you know, I, I really felt comfortable at that police department and so on, so, right, like they, they really made me feel warm and, and safe and secure. Like I don't, I've never had a, I've never had that experience where I'm like, hey man, the police are really here to protect me. Like I, I've never had that experience. I, you know, so what what are the what should we be looking for and towards uh, in this space when we're just like, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't like this thing. Let's get rid of it. Like <laughs> start right. over. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it, it's a very fundamental, basic question. And I usually. Uh, do talks about this when I'm trying to explain to police officers and other members of the community what safety looks like, right? And even when we feel that, like, if I was going to be like real, like, big brain technical legalese about this, you could you could start with the basic confines of the of the Supreme Court case of um, um, in Arkansas, where it essentially says that police officers have have no affirmative duty to protect you, right? And that's you know, in some ways, the the wait, rest. Wait, wait. Say that again. Yeah, yeah. So there's litany. There's a litany of Supreme Court cases, and I can send them to you. Uh, that say that police officers have no affirmative duty to protect you from harm. That is the law. Like they do so voluntary, right? It's a voluntary policing okay. service, right? And in fact, I'll take it a step further. When we had the uh, when we had the uh, school shooting at Margie Stoneman Douglas. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was widespread that why didn't those officers go in there sooner? They should have went in there. They should have disarmed. They should have did something. Instead, they were like sitting out in their car. They called for backup, and that mm -hmm. was that. They're like, oh, these guys are going to jail. Wrong. Obviously, <laughs> the, the Florida Supreme Court held that they did they did they did what they did, and that was fine. They should not lose their jobs, and they should not be relieved of duty um, because there is no affirmative defense uh, for police officers' protection. That's just the law of the land. 
um, we believe or we submit, our, it, and a lot of this stuff is it's still Trumpian in a way because I feel like uh, President Trump's uh, presidency, if it has done nothing else, it has at least shown us that the the difference between what is legal and what is not is all gray. It, yeah. The whole idea of social contract we have about why we submit to law in America and why we go to jail or why we don't, uh, subpoenas, pardons, you name it, <clears throat> all comes down to this idea that we're voluntarily submitting to a democracy because we believe that living in this such of agreement is better than not doing it at all, right? The fact that I pull over when I see blue lights has less to do about me getting harmed well, maybe more so up on the black tent. Has less to do about me getting let you drive on. <laughs> right. right. It has less to do about that and more to do with that. Oh, this is what I have been trained to do. Right. But Trump obviously turns all that stuff on his head. It's like, I don't have to show the subpoena, make the Supreme Court, you know, enforce their own subpoenas, right? Things like that. So I say that to say that when we talk about law and how it work is orchestrated, definitely policing, we have to ask ourselves easy yet fundamental questions. And the one thing I've always asked people, you know, without the backdrop of like, you know, police violence is what makes you feel safe in your community? And nine times out of 10, even people that are far right, they never bring up police. It's not like you're sitting at home and like, hey, what makes you feel safe in your home? Far right person. Oh, knowing that I can call 911. Never the answer. Never the answer, right? It's always like, oh, knowing that I have, you know, a 12 pack of beer in the fridge or knowing that my dog can lick me on the face, right? It's like stuff like that. And when you talk about safety and comfort and what makes you feel like you're not going to be imputed upon on your liberties and freedoms in your own home or out at the grocery store, nine times out of 10, it's not because police officers are out patrolling. And that's just what it is, right? So when we talk about what safety looks like in our own individual communities, we also need to take those things into account that safe communities may not look like policing, right? I know, for instance, when I um, you know, go out and drive and I'm going into uh, diverse communities you know, that have been deemed as you know, high criminal active areas, I'm like super nervous because like you could not even be breaking the law and you might get pulled over, right? It's just like, you know, what do you do? I just wanna pull you over to see what you smell like. So. I think that's where the conversation starts. What does safety look like in our communities? And then from there, you start putting on the layers. Like, okay, maybe civilian oversight, because maybe there's a trust issue here and we need more investigation. Or maybe it's a cultural change. Maybe we need an outside police chief. Once you identify what safety looks like in communities, it'll take you that much further. That's a really, that's a really good way to kind of frame this discussion and, to be, and how people should be thinking about uh, this space. Just for the record, I, I need to say that uh, my dear friend Rodney is an attorney. He went to law school. So when he's talking about things, he's not just like talking about his Google fingers or his Twitter fingers. Like he he studied it, he's barred, like he's, he's done all of those things to, to make him an expert in these regards. So, but as we talk about this kind of framing of safety and space, you have a uh, unique experience with the police, right? So most black men have a hesitancy because we are trained and cultured and we've had a few bad experiences your, you know, I don't want to say 80% of your job, but I mean, probably 80, 90% of your day, you are watching the worst of the worst of police officers doing the wrong thing. How are you able to um, reconcile that hopefully most police officers are not, that most of them are, are doing the right thing and, and that we have these like bad, like, like there is this, this narrative that either police are all bad or that it is a small number of bad actors and we need to get them out. What is your feel on, on those kind of things? How do you reconcile the two and, and kind of grapple with that duality of being naturally like, 
hesitant as a black man and having, you know, to be objective as an arbiter of justice. Yeah, it comes down to the fact that I have to compartmentalize it all, um, you know, and really look at it from a fact finder when I'm doing my day to day job versus the emotional component. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'll submit that it's hard to even do that at times as well. But I, I take my job really serious and I feel like that's a, a part of the professionalism of it, just like certain things that we do in the military, it's, it's just a part of all being a professional and doing what the job requires because we believe though in doing it this way, it really uh, gives you the best outcome towards justice, right? Um, and if I had just knee jerk reactions based upon emotion, we really wouldn't get anywhere and it will also taint um, the credibility of the work that we do, right? So a lot of what I have to do is really try to compartmentalize those traumatic instances and look at the facts uh, for what they are. Um, you know, obviously, I, I hear from the police department each and every day, hey, just a few bad apples. And I'm the first one to finish the, you know, the idiom for them. So, you know, a few bad apples spoil the whole bunch, right? So if you have one, y'all, y'all spoil, we're going throughout the whole bunch, probably. I'm not going to eat any bad apple, um, even if one bad apple is in there, right? So it, it's, for me, it's less about that um, saying. And, I, and I, I don't even think it's appropriate, right? And I think it's some way misplaced is because, you know, typically when, you don't know a bad apple is bad until something bad has already happened, right? Um, it's not like you can see those things on the surface sometimes. Now, there, there may be a couple of red flags here and there, and I think that's where our work comes in so, so importantly is that we're very proactive. So if we have a police officer that has had some minor level discourse complaints and we're seeing a pattern of practice, we can tip off our chief like, hey, there's something here. You guys might relieve this guy duty, do a couple of psychological evaluations, see what's there, if anything at all, before something bad happens. And then we have to do a retroactive remedy, right? Because we, we, we're trying to avoid that. I'm in the business of catching it before it happens, right? Um, so, you know, unlike a fruit that has, you know, that has gone bad, you can probably see it on the surface before you bite into it and have to go to the hospital. Unlike a police officer, usually you, you find the bad apple after they've done the harm. And that's why that saying is so negatively insidious. It's like, you don't even realize that the bad apple has harmed the community. Like you, you say it as if, this can just be thrown away. And it, it, it's crazy because, you know, we get around 250 um, cases in our office each year. Some of them are, you know, repeat offenders or whatnot. Um, but on the grand scheme of the police department, we have 2,000 officers. It's still, you know, you know, around, you know, less than 10%, you know, which is probably still too much, but it is what it is. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that this occurs and it's a human thing to mess up at your job. Right. You know, I go to come in the work late. Sometimes I mess up on my job. Bad things do happen. The issue that police, I think, have a hard time connecting is that although I make a mistake and, and everyone else makes a mistake, we're held accountable for our mistakes. Usually there's no, um, you know, extra laws that provide additional layers of protection so that I'm not brought to justice. Uh, more than likely, I could get fired from my job, things of that nature. For police officers, typically they're not held accountable. And that's what people are yearning for. When we, when we talk about instances that have happened uh, with the George Floyd situation, the Breonna Taylor situation, people were calling for justice. At the end of the day, like at the end of the day, people weren't calling for these, I mean, maybe somewhere, but most people weren't calling for these people to be shot by firing squad and put to death. They're like, yo, these guys, need, these guys need to go to court. These guys need to be put on trial. They need to be indicted, right? They're talking about things that are fundamentally 
uh, a part of the American fabric. Justice, having your day in court, being, being brought upon a jury of your peers, things of that nature. And far too often that doesn't happen for police. And because of that, people protest it, right? That is it. That is it. Like no more, no less. And so when I break that down to police officers, I'm like, your people are just asking for things to be just and fair as it applies to police and how they operate. And it just doesn't happen. And as soon as you kind of like push back on that narrative and, you know, kind of give them that, they're like, oh, well, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? So it's, it, it, that's what it is. You know, at the end of the day, I tell police officers, I'm like, yo, this is a job. And if you suck at it, find a new place of employment. That's yeah. it. <laughs> that's it. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really, I think, unique way to, to, you know, to kind of do this perspective. And so when I talk to folks uh, similarly about this thing, I'm like, you know, being a police officer is, is just a hard job. And there's not a lot of, you know, payback in being a cop, right? Like people don't, no one likes to see a police officer. There's no situation where you're like, yes, the cops are coming. Like you call the cops when somebody's breaking into your house, when somebody's trying to rob, like you, you've had a traumatic experience. And then the cops come and they didn't solve your problem. You're like, would you go get the people? And most of the time they're not going to get the people. Maybe you get them and they're able to stop, you know, whatever situation is coming. But in most cases, that's not even a option or reality. These are people who are responding to a problem and you're like, all right, well, okay. And you're still mad at them for doing this thing. And so it's this really I would say dangerous and, and difficult thing where they got to be on and they have all this authority. And, you know, we talk a lot about the militarizing of the police. And that is always a, a striking statement for me because, you know, as someone else who serves in the military, it's like being the police is nothing like the military, right? Like I have a command structure, like I'm not out here autonomous or doing any kind of thing. It's like, we're both officers. We lead soldiers, but we have someone who was telling us specifically, hey, this is your mission, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, we operate under clear rules of engagement and, and things like that. And even in the battlefield, don't have the same level of deference and control and, and, and options. Can you just talk a little bit about how, you know, people respond when you ask them, why did you do this? What were you thinking? How did you come to this? Like, and that idea, because I, I think that that understanding is really critical and unique because most people don't understand what it's like, where they're like, why did they shoot that person 10 times? Or why did they do this in this moment? Why didn't they shoot him in the kneecap? Or, or why didn't they just let him go? Like, what do people, what do these police officers say when you say those things? Or when you're like, I watched you on the thing, you hesitated. What was that? Why did you? It's so funny. So it's a two-sided question. I'm going to answer in reality, and then I'm going to answer in the hypothetical. In reality, I don't get to ask those questions, right? And that's largely due to the fact that police unions ensure that civilian overseers don't get to ask those questions, especially in the state of Florida. In the state of Florida, we have what we call the Police Officers Bill of Rights. The main thing within that that I think everyone obviously should focus on is that before police officers are asked questions about an incident, they're able to review, see, and read all evidence against them before they ever make a statement, right? Body camera footage, closed caption TV that may be around the city, witness statements, um, statements of other officers, you name it, they get to read it before and view it before, even with counsel sometimes, before they ever make a statement. Obviously, that's problematic. And we probably call it the one. So, so they, in the state of Florida, you. so I, I'm the officer, I am an officer involved shooting, I get to see the video. You can see everything, every, every, all evidence against you. Your report, everything. 
everything that you all, you know, you painstakingly gone frame by frame through body cam. And before you asked me what I was thinking, I've already read what everybody thinks I was doing, why they thought, and I prepared a statement as to how I was acting. Yep. Wow. And why, the question is, why is that allowed? The answer is because of police unions. Police unions lobby elected officials to ensure that they have these kinds of statutes on the books that protect them and their interests. Um, police unions, there's certain things that shouldn't have a union, right? When you think about unions, at least from the, the, the typical ones that we see up north and also in the Northeast or in the Midwest, is that unions are fighting for the little guy who can't get fair wages because their employer wants to work them to death, right? So they need someone to protect their interests. More often than not, more often than not, police are holding the gun, right? And, and I say, and no pun intended there. Usually they have people, uh, you know, they, they have people, right? So when you're collectively bargaining, at, bargaining as an elected official uh, with police unions about their contracts, when we talk about pay, when we talk about uh, their, their rights in investigations, usually it's like, hey, agree with what we say, or we're just not gonna police, we'll just strike. And what are you gonna do that, right? Now, every now and then you have like the bloody Cianties of the world and like, you know, in, in Connecticut and such that, that will pull that car and be like, well, if you don't wanna work sanitation workers and you don't wanna work police officers, fine, I'll find some private people. Because at the end of the day, one of these B cops that are making 40 or $30,000 a year, they probably can't go without a paycheck either. So I'll just wait about, right? But more often than not, that doesn't happen. And, and it, it may be for good public policy reasons, it doesn't. But the fact of the matter is this, is that Police unions, both on state and local levels, um, you know, hold out these elected officials, officials and they get what they want. So that when a police officer is relieved of duty, they get paid. Why does that happen? Collective bargaining at municipalities. So that when police officers are under investigation, they get to view all the evidence. Why does that happen? Lobbying at state levels. So when police officers may or may not get indicted, right? Why does that happen? Because unions are lobbying uh, district attorneys and state attorneys in local areas saying, no, 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 you need us to solve these cases, right? No prosecutor goes to trial without droves of uh, police statements and droves of investigations from detectives, right? If you want us to do our job effectively, you need to do your job effectively. And what does that mean? It means a quid pro quo relationship, right? So when we talk about the establishment of policing, how it's embedded in everything in our fabric, you look at it and says, okay, well, I see why this makes sense, right? That's the reality of it, right? The hypothetical of it is that if I were to ask police officers those questions, they probably wouldn't be able to articulate it in a way uh, that allows me to really gain information from it. Because the fact of the matter is, and I think you hit the nail on the head is that the difference between what we do in the military and what they do in policing is the autonomy of it, right? Private Joe Snuffy doesn't have a, a firearm on his waist patrolling for nine to 10 hours out of the day um, with no real oversight. More than likely they're sitting in the barracks and drill sergeant is up their butt and they ain't gonna be doing nothing. When you ask 18 year old or a 20 year old, uh, maybe out of high school, maybe didn't go to college, whatever it may be, why did you shoot that person that many times? they more than likely won't be able to articulate it. You know, the heat of passion, uh, sudden, you know, fears make you do different things. Um, so I understand the complexity of how the explanation may be difficult to boot them just being in fear of doing things due to their own implicit biases, right? So I, I, I'm not gonna try to downplay it and say that police work is that easy to know why you do, did what you did when you did it. But what I can say is that far too often they do overreact. And I think a lot of that has to do with training. A lot of that has to do with hiring the wrong people. Um, and another thing, while we're on this topic, I know a lot of people talk about implicit bias training. 
I am not totally in favor of implicit bias training. I, I feel as though that if you're training someone to determine after they've been hired that they have an implicit bias, say, let's just say in the world of worlds that that training works, right? Let's just say implicit bias training works. I have now proved to you that you have a bias against black people. What does that mean? It means now that I'm no longer having implicit bias. It means that I'm just full-blown racist now. I have a full-blown bias. I'm aware of my racism. And guess what? I'm going to go to work tonight because you can't fire me because I have a bias because that's not illegal, right? Everyone has a bias, right? So the fact of the matter is, yeah, we can train people to identify their biases and that's really the crux of implicit bias training. But if we're not training people to get over their biases or pre-screen people based upon those biases so that we ensure they don't get those jobs, what are we talking about, right? So that's a more of an aside. I'm gonna throw it back to you. Well, I appreciate all that. And it's funny that you mentioned some of the interaction with the DA. So um, our county prosecutor uh, in, some, in a somewhat controversial move for some and a praise move to others, uh, started announcing a list of police officers that she's been updating regularly uh, and publicly of people who have lied, right? Like police officers who have lied in court and, and yeah, lied. It's Brady, yeah, it's Brady list. Yeah, and it's just like publishing it. And it was this, moment where it was like people were like what it's like yeah these people don't trust them because you know they go from one department to another and yeah. and so that you know other departments think twice about hiring this person who may have been let go because they lied to the prosecutor over here and then they go get a job in another county or another municipality and so i just you know i mean obviously this is a very complicated uh, issue and I appreciate you sharing some light in, in your perspective. I want to shift focus a little bit yeah. to talk about you know what it's been like dealing with this pandemic, right? So Miami-Dade County has been hit especially hard. Detroit is obviously dealing with this. Um, how have you been protecting your mental health? Like what have you been doing to stay centered, to stay jolt? You know, like what what are, what are you doing to maintain that? Yeah, man. You know, mental health is crucial. You know, anytime that I get the the opportunity to speak about it or post about it, I always try to. Especially when you have people that are really like isolated on their own or losing their jobs, and you know, the world's kind of been turned upside down in some ways, right? So, that level of mental resiliency is needed now more than ever before. And one thing I, I try to do, obviously, uh, you know, I see trauma on a different level in multiple ways. One being an intelligence officer. I often tell people being an intelligence officer in the military, knowing what threats face the military as well as how we may potentially threat other, uh, be a threat to other things um, is traumatic. You know, seeing police officer body more camera footage every day for hours is traumatic. Being a black man in America is traumatic. If I wasn't, if I didn't believe in God, it was somewhat optimistic, I'd probably be depressed or suicidal, right? So it, for, for me, it's one of those things um, of really just pro kind of protecting your energy, right? Um, and really staying present in what you're experiencing, right? Uh, because there came a time this year when I saw George Floyd's death that I didn't really have a visceral emotional response because I was so numb to seeing police violence, both in my day-to-day -day job as well as on TV. And I think not having that response can be toxic and somewhat problematic because these are emotional things. We should be able to connect with these things on an emotional human level because that gives us empathy and compassion. And I think that compassion is what we're lacking as a nation, you know, loving each other as our fellow countrymen, looking out for one another as our neighbor, things of that nature. So I think it's important that we keep that level of compassion and empathy and connecting with these things. But at the same time, reminding ourselves that when we're present in these scenes, what are we looking at? 
how are we internalizing it? Asking ourselves those hard questions, whether it be to our friends or to ourselves in the, in the mirror, uh, to make sure that we're not unplugging from these things. Um, and it's okay. I, I think it's okay not to have all the answers for for some of these things. I think it's okay to to want to cry, to to be angry, to even want to protest. Um, but at some point throughout that throughout those stages of emotion, you got to be okay with it. And I think kind of having that leveling effect uh, makes a difference, uh, so that you don't kind of spiral into any unhealthy depressions or you know place blame on someone else um, unreasonably. Um, so re really doing that, you know, surrounding yourself with people that you respect and that care for you. I think all that stuff is so important when we look at how to navigate uh, the spaces that we're in. And I think if we learn that on an individual level, then we probably leave 2020 better than um, any other year, uh, because I really think that's what our country needs, compassion, civility, and empathy. That's what's up. I mean, you know, I, I still feel like you're in that newlywed, you know, era you know what's it been two years right. now you just it's like been two years for me man man that's congratulations that, that's you. so exciting you know um you know i always ask people what are you doing for exercise like that was a big piece you know up here where gyms were closed for such a significant right. time you know i i do exercise for mental health you know it is my thing i'm like oh i'm gonna go burn these calories i'm gonna go lift heavy weights i'm gonna throw right. them around do this crazy thing and be sore for a week like i did uh this my workout this past sunday was literally insane we you know ran two two or three rounds of the obstacle course and then we're doing this drop sets of uh, uh, reps so i did four rounds uh 215 uh for 10 with uh kettlebell swings and toaster bars and then 800 meters of walking lunges my legs were dead they were like bro what are you yeah. doing we're not we're not your friend yeah, absolutely. You'd be doing the most. I've been seeing you post workouts of the day and stuff from like, you know, wounded soldiers, survivors and all that stuff. And I think that's all cool and it's cute and all that stuff. I'm sure it makes you feel well. Keep doing that. I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there that do it too. So I'm definitely not discouraging it. I love to work out. I don't, I work out probably five times a week, at least for an hour or more. Uh, during the shutdowns, um, I'll, whenever mommy was shut down, because it wasn't that long, because we opened up pretty much right after we closed. Um, yeah. you know, I, I just rucked, you know, I just put up pits of weight in the rucksack and just went on a ruck, went on a run, did some push-ups and sit-ups. You know, it doesn't take much, as you know, uh, to get a good workout in, especially after what we went through at basic training. So, you know, always, always need a good workout in no matter where you're at. Well, what, Rodney, I really appreciate you, you know, taking some time. If folks are interested in, like, thoughtful solutions, are there places that they can go to learn more about civilian oversight or, or police reform or, or like, if someone is like, hey, man, I, I heard something what you're saying. I'm really interested. I want to find a solution. Where do they go? What should they be thinking? How, how do they do that? Yeah, you know, one thing I always point people to is that we have a national organization of civilian oversight of law enforcement. Um, it's an acronym. In acronym form, it's called NACOLE, N-A-C-O-L-E dot org. Um, you can go on there and check out all the civilian oversight entities around the nation. Um, and, and if you feel like you want to do civilian oversight um, in your area, um, you know, I always say a, a basic course in, civ in civics can probably give you all the riches of the world, because if you want civilian oversight or if you want some great law somewhere else, all it takes is peeling back the, the charter of some of these jurisdictions and finding the best civil, civilian oversight entity that's codified in law and bringing that to the city near you. Uh, so when people ask me about civilian oversight, I'm quick to give them our ordinance, to give them our charter amendment, to show them how we did it, how we got it on the books. Um, and I'm hoping that with Joe Biden there, we can get some federal oversight as well. That kind of um, underscores some of the things you talked about when we talk about police officers going to other jurisdictions.